This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. As I tell people, the good news is tech's getting democratized. The challenging news is tech's getting democratized. Individuals can now do what the CIA and the KGB could do 50 years ago. And they had to deal with disinformation at their level. Now everybody does. And how many of us have a team of analysts to sift through what's real and what's not like they had 50 years ago? Does clickbait information harm consumers? Our guest today is Dr. David Bray, a distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. As a worldwide leader in technology and data, Dr. David Bray brings unique insight regarding technological advances and how they affect consumers in the digital age. Tune in to learn more about David's vision for the future of tech and how it could help people navigate the merits of information in the clickbait era. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Albert. Great to be here. All right. So this is going to be a lot of fun. When we did our research on you, you're cited in many different arenas. But for our guests, can you quickly summarize... What it is that you're an expert on? I would say I'm an expert on falling on my head and then like uh, learning as I do. But I would say that that includes back in the 90s, I was fortunate enough to uh, start at a very early age working with small satellites. It was in the classified defense arena. So I know a little bit about space and how small satellites that were classified at the time, those same capabilities are now commercially available. Fast forward then to the early 2000s when I did bioterrorism prepares response, so bio and the application of IT to bio, then spent time on the ground in Afghanistan in the late 2000s. And so thinking about humanitarian aid efforts as well as counterinsurgency efforts and how tech can be applied there. Fast forward then to leading a bipartisan commission that reviewed the R&D efforts of the U.S. intelligence community, which even in 2013, bipartisanship was hard to come by. And then uh, spent four years as a digital diplomat and human flak jacket at the Federal Communications Commission as their CIO. And then joined Vent Surf with the People Centered Internet, where we actually focus on countering disinformation and also trying to make community-based approaches to using the internet more effective. Behind the scenes, I was working with Special Operations Command. Got another chance with another bipartisan commission in 2020. This time, what the U.S. and its allies should do with regards to data and tech, everything from supply chains, cybersecurity, also thinking about space and biotechnologies. And here we are today. Yeah, that was a mouthful. I'm going to quickly summarize and paraphrase, but David has continuously been involved in he straddled the realm of where technology can help protect the United States and its allies. I think that's the simplest thing yep. from, from many different threats. Biotech, space, everything. Threats to disinformation. Yeah. He's been at the forefront of how can technology help protect our country. Is that a good summary? It is. And I would say I'm both, a, I'm, I'm both thinking about the U.S., but I'm also thinking about the world as a whole. I mean, it's important to not forget yeah. that we're all connected. So, yes. This is pretty awesome. And for those who are not familiar with David and some of his accomplishments, you can check out the show notes. I'm going to read off some of the things that you're a part of so they can get a flavor for what they're about to hear. He's a speaker and advisor at the World Economic Forum. He has been a part of a distinguished fellow, a principal at Lead Do Adapt Ventures, which helps in a lot of these arenas. You also are a Marshall and Eisenhower fellow, executive coach at Harvard KSG. You are, and I can keep going on, but we only have an hour. Uh, my wife and I, we are uh, happy uh, parents to a current five-year-old. So that's my, my happiest uh, accomplishment, actually. There you go. A five, and, he's a, and he's a family man. This is a hot topic. You know, obviously, a lot of the, our guests on this show and a lot of our audience, they work at tech companies. And tech companies have largely been in the limelight for possibly using tech 
in a nefarious way. And so like the idea of ethics is involved in tech more so than ever now. So give us an idea of what you look for and what you advise on, because as technology has gotten very good at you know reaching masses, distributed information, getting into understanding consumers at a one to one level, you know these are like marketing terms to say like oh this is good. It's also being used for possibly not as good things. So how do we build up the good? And I think that's where your like where your advice really helps. Give us an idea of how you've seen this evolve and where you think companies need to start focusing. Great question. So I would say when thinking about tech, uh, you need to recognize that that tech itself is a tool. It, it's how you choose yeah. to use it that decides whether you see good outcomes, benevolent outcomes, or, or less than benevolent outcomes. I like when I first parachute in, I first try to ask, you know, sort of what are your envisioned use cases for the technology? Have you thought through it? Because uh, you'd be surprised the number of organizations I go to where they first say, what's a use case? And, and so I step back <laughs> and I say, okay, well, well, how do you see people actually using the technology? What are the goals? And go from there. And then once we have a sense of what are the goals in terms of how you envision people using the technology, then you can sort of stop back and say, okay, if this is how you envision it being used, how might it be used in ways that you didn't intend or be used in ways that are, are less than benevolent? Because I think a lot of times organizations may experience, whether it's misinformation or just, you know, unfortunate spin or something like that that is thrown their way, that a tool that they envision being used for, for benevolent ends is now being used in less than benevolent ends. And I think in some respects, I hate to say it, unless you, you really clamp down on what users can do with your tool, which itself is not really benevolent, you've got to be ready for yeah. unintended side effects. And so what I try to recommend to companies that are navigating this era, because what makes the era we're now in is that tech is changing at such a fast paced rate in terms of its adopt adoption around the world, in terms of its availability around the world, that it used to be, you know, if a tech was rolled out, you could wait for about 10 years before it was even approaching anywhere near to global adoption. And now it's increasingly six months or less. So you have to be listening for how people are using it and, and observing both the good the ugly and the bad. And then if you see things that are not what you're intending, maybe engage your stakeholders to respond to it. Speaking of the rate of adoption, we have a guest coming on on our show who's a part of a company. The company is called Deal and does like international HR. And I believe it's the fastest company ever to $100 million. It's like, it's like 18 months. It's wow. like 18 months. From, yeah. It's from zero to 100 million. The yeah. challenge is, is that if you go back and you look like the beginning of the, the 20th century, so the 1900s, it took about 10 to 15 years to figure out the ethical uses of technology, which was about a generation. Yeah. And that included you know, everything from how we might use planes and, and, and how we might deal with the fact that planes and automobiles changed what was possible, both in terms of good, but also in terms of now you had like planes as war. You also had with cars. I mean, cars were great, but now you had interstate crime. And so we had to deal with the fact yeah. that someone might commit a crime in a place where they didn't live. And that was hard for the local police to respond to. So it took about 10 to 15 years. We don't have 10 to 15 years to figure out the ethics of the new technologies we're rolling out now. And so I think that's where you have to be almost hypervigilant in terms of just being attentive to learning from your stakeholders, learning from the people that are using your product, as well as the people that aren't using your product. And, and what are they, they missing that, that's holding them back from using your product or service? And then think about how you can actually try to steer it in more benevolent ends. To give our audience an idea, when do you kind of get involved? Is it from like with startup founders where they're just starting? Is it more towards the later stages of the life cycle of a product or service where it's being adopted by, let's say, you know, a million users and like, oh, man, we don't <laughs> we don't know what paths we're walking down. Let's get someone to help us think about this. Give us an idea when you get involved. I would say it's all life cycles. The, the common theme usually is actually less the period of the life cycle of product or service development. It's more that someone has had an awakening of, oh, this could end really badly if we don't practice a little bit of forethought 
And that could be a initial founder that is like going in and saying, I know that I want to do good, but I also recognize that, you know, technology is a double-edged sword. Or it could be later in the product lifecycle when they're rolling it out and all of a sudden they've had awakening where they realize, oh, now we're actually starting to see these bad side effects. The common denominator that sort of echoes throughout my career is I tend to go to places that are on fire. Uh, and that's not that I'm attracted to the fire, <laughs> yeah. but when something's on fire, that's when people are not happy with the status quo. And I'm definitely not a status quo yeah. person. If you want a status quo person, please go find somebody else. But if you want someone that's like, okay, let's go up from the dance floor. I say like, instead of like being on the dance floor, we're only seeing transactions. Let's go up to the balcony and look at what's really happening here. Because I think a lot of times where the disconnects occur in a company is when you're dealing with things that are on a day-to-day -day transaction, you're almost overwhelmed by the tyranny of the now. And if you really sort of take the time to go up and say, what really is happening here in terms of the incentives, the systems, you'll find that actually it may not necessarily even be your, your product or service that is problematic. It may actually be either the, the structural incentives that you haven't spent time to develop trust with your community or stakeholders that you're working with, that it's actually some human factors that are influencing the less than benevolent ends. And if you want to have more benevolent ends, you actually have to step up to the, to the balcony. And, and I tell people, especially when it comes to disinformation and misinformation, you might feel like there's more disinformation nowadays than ever before. Yeah. But actually, if you go back to the 1890s, Pulitzer and Hearst, that's how they made their money with less than you know, factual headlines, they sold newspapers, and they were doing it because that was a way to sell newspapers. Maybe we're selling clicks similarly today, I don't know. I would just say that that's sort of interesting parallels. In some respects, disinformation has always been there. Yeah. It's just that as we've democratized technology, we're also democratizing the production of disinformation, which means that now everybody, not just a few companies and a few governments have to think about it, now everybody has to be prepared for it. The way you just described it on a human level, a behavior level, but what about on a tech level? Is it, it, do you see a place where technology is ever going to be able to police or <laughs> give judgments on disinformation? Because the, the one thing that I was thinking about is the way information is scooped nowadays, right? Meaning scooped, like everyone trying to scoop somebody like, hey, I think something's happening. I'm going to start putting out information immediately. And the reality is there is no reality to measure that against. Like, what is the truth? Well, if the truth is unknown, then no tool can solve this problem. Let's take a news event or, a, you know, we obviously have world, like major events happening right now in the United States, as well as around the world. But when these things start happening, there is no truth because nobody actually knows what's happening. You're just, you know, beat reporters on Twitter are just kind of tweeting in what they think is happening. So is there ever going to be a place or how does it get to a place where it's, you say, hey, we can actually using technology because humans have no idea how to stop this, but using technology, we can say we can stop the flow of disinformation. Is there ever going to be a way to do that? Well, so it depends on what form of society you're living in. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you pick an autocratic society, maybe. Uh, it may not necessarily be the truth, but it's the version of truth that the autocratic society wants to tell you. Uh, clearly, I'm not a fan of supporting autocratic societies. Yeah. But I would say in, in societies like ours in the United States and around the world in which we still celebrate a plurality of thought, I think we're going to have to get comfortable with the messiness of sorting out and, and that the only real solution would be tech that improves our critical thinking. Because at the end of the okay. day, it's actually going to be incumbent upon each of us to be aware of, you know, we need to triangulate. That one single source is probably not going to be sufficient. You're going to have to triangulate different sources. And this is how they dealt with disinformation back in the 1890s and 1900s was actually finally critical thinking came in and said, you know, that newspaper that said the Spanish blew up the U.S. ship, maybe it was less than accurate. And, you know, but that was only 10 years after the fact, which is problematic if you've uh, actually gone to war with Spain, which we did because of disinformation. I would love to see technology hold a mirror up to ourselves and says, 
You know, it looks like, Albert, you're getting your emotions, you're getting revved up here, you're getting angry or you're getting fearful. That's the number one way to make something go viral is to make it angry or fearful. So if the tech holds a mirror up to yeah. you and says, did you know your blood pressure's up? That might be a way to make you pause and say, oh, someone might be trying to manipulate my emotions to try and get me, you know, engaged in this. And maybe I need to step back and actually say, why am I getting angry about this? And it's hard because how many of us actively go seek out new sites that are different than our existing views of the world? I mean, that's uncomfortable. Nah, most people don't. <laughs> yeah. Most, I mean, it, it's a... Uh... You know, I think the the Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma, yep. I believe is what it's called. I mean, it, it that's what happens, right? It's like, hey, algorithmically, you they want to keep you on platform. That's really what they want to do. But oh, exactly. I, I don't I don't agree that there's nefarious No, it's not nefarious at all. interest behind. It. It's like, listen, we we just we're just watching what you do. Uh, and I always use my self as my own example. It's like, you know, I like surfing. So like I noticed it's not really hard to figure out. The more I spend on that site, the more surfing content I'll get because yep. it just figured it out. Right. right. And so it really is we become our own echo chambers. So that's how people that get fall into like, let's say conspiracy theories, they go down, they call it like going down the rat hole, but it's it's not it's actually the same behavior everyone else has. It's just that their interests somehow went down this path. Whereas mine stayed at surfing, yours went down this other path. And so you just got fed more content that looked exactly like whatever it was that you were engaging with. And I don't think companies want to get rid of that because I saw like a, for example, marketers. We've had a couple marketers on one of our other shows, Marketing Trends, talk about, hey, the problem is, is as soon as they take away contextual advertising, you'll realize how bad advertising really is. Now it's totally irrelevant and you can't stand it. It's like, so in a way, we kind of want to be known. We kind of want things personalized. So we as consumers, we're also part of the problem, right? Because we want contextualized content. Otherwise, we don't like the platforms. So that's where, again, you have to go up to the balcony and say, if, you're absolutely right. You, you've identified that. I don't think any company is trying to intentionally polarize us. But what happens is yeah. if they tell the they tell the algorithm optimize for engagement, the reality is human nature is optimized when it's one group is angry in response to another group that's angry. And so it's the wildfire that never dies out. It just bounces back and forth. That's where the tech companies can honestly say, like, we're not trying to polarize the world. We're just trying to optimize for engagement. It just happens to be that one of these interesting evolutionary flaws in human behavior is we respond to that tiger in the grass that meter is going to come right for us or is threatening us. We don't respond yeah. to, oh, look at that nice ray of sunlight. To me, the big question of the decade ahead is how can we use tech to help both individuals and groups identify the flaws or weaknesses of humans and mitigate that? Because another example, the more something is repeated, even if it's not true, the more likely you are going to be willing to accept it's true. I mean, this is marketing. This is advertisement. Yeah. 15,000 years ago, the more we saw something, the more familiar we got with it and the more willing we were to accept it. Now in political rhetoric, as well as other disinformation campaigns, the trouble of fighting disinformation is you have to come out and say, that's not true. You just aired it. And so in some respects, by trying to combat it, you've actually made more people likely to believe it, even as you said, that's not true. And so the way we're going to eventually solve this is tech that holds a mirror up to ourselves and our communities. I also would like to sort of figure out what is the tech equivalent of digital pen pals? Hmm. Because if we can begin to link people with people who are different, and I've seen this work, and, and they actually did a program with students in Palestine, students in Israel. They obviously had to translate uh, the, the letters, but they had letters going back and forth. And they did this electronically. And it wasn't revealed until about nine months in that, by the way, you are now corresponding with someone who is actually from what you would consider to be not so friendly towards you. And that changes their mindset mm. because they've now been engaging them. 
I would love to see in the United States. What if we had an internal Peace Corps where we actually exchange people from rural and urban areas or things like that and actually allow them to either through tech blog about their experiences and air about their experiences or even virtually like what is it like to spend another week in someone else's shoes that might increase our empathy, which could be an interesting counter to things getting polarized. You know, I was born in 1980 Mm -hmm. and that puts me in an interesting time frame because when I was a kid, journalism was considered the the bastion of truth, right? Like, because you didn't really have a way to even identify that they were publishing something misleading, let's say. Things were upheld to a standard. I grew up near the Washington, D.C. area. So you're talking about, you know, the Washington Post. It was considered this bastion of truth. Cable news television didn't emerge until I was, you know, a little bit older. Now there's the 24-hour news cycle. And now it's gotten to the point where people, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but like people... Definitely believe, I think we would all agree that the news sources themselves now have a slant. I remember being in journalism class in, you know, 1995, where they were saying, hey, journalists have to be exactly reporting on the news. You're not supposed to put too much opinion in it. If you do, it's considered an op-ed. But now the business models of today encourage fast clicking and consumption. That's, that's the reality of it. Yes. So the sources of news have kind of taken a position when you think about like whether it's states, nations, cities, municipalities, or just let's say if I want to start a business where I want to be a source of truth, the reality is like we as a consumer have now started to distrust what we're told. How do we get back to a place where we can say like, hey, this is a trusted source, like, and, and also that a trusted source can I get, I guess, earn enough money where they can continue to be a trusted source so that they don't have to go chasing clicks? Right. How do you think it gets there? So you hit the nail on the head that we used to have, you know, and again, there were only a few sources, but there were still a few sources and and they were mostly pushing, you know, you need to be objective, don't take a slant. You have to ask like, what caused that to disappear? It was the loss of subscriptions. When you lose subscriptions, you no longer have that ongoing revenue. And and, and then there's, I've I've talked to people who are journalists. There's been some interesting studies that show a 3,000 word well-researched article that took, you know, maybe three or four months of investigative reporting versus someone who writes a 500 word article that was just using off a press release <laughs> from some senator's office. <laughs> Guess which one gets more views? The, the one that was written today off a press release that yeah. had no other background research. And so in some respects, like you said, we are part of the challenge is that we are responding to things that are not nuanced. We're not responding to it well. Now, I think there's two interesting things that could be done to fix this. You mentioned cable news when cable news was rolled out. As boring as it is, there was a requirement for C-SPAN, which was all of us, when we have our cable television bills, if we have cable television, I have streaming TV. So, I mean, I don't know if you have yeah. cable TV, you know. Not going to lie. I've never sat down to watch C-SPAN. I mean, I've seen it on. and I've tried. <laughs> right. But it was at least a chance to actually have the cameras running. And so you didn't, you didn't have to take someone's word for the senator or the representative said the following thing. You could go to it. Yeah. And so the question is, do we need something like that where... If we are fortunate enough to have internet access, we need to fund something that's an ongoing revenue model. But then the challenge is, of course, how do you make sure that, that that money represents the things you're interested in? And so maybe you get a vote. You say every year, you know, here's my, you know, I'm paying my percentage for uh, contribution to this public service, and I'm now going to vote on the five things I want to have covered in that article uh, or in that a- activity. But we need to figure out, like you said, right now, because everything is trying to do clicks and trying to do with advertisements and trying to, and it's not just for-profit news, it's for-profit news that has to show to your shareholders quarterly growth. Yeah. And so it's getting more and more like Hollywood. At the same time, I've also talked to people who run political campaigns on both sides of the aisle. 
because I'm a nonpartisan. And they say the challenge is running a political campaign, they can use data to show how their candidate will win if they play to their base and they get their base riled up. Mm -hmm. They cannot produce data models as to how they're going to win the campaign if they play to the middle. Interesting. And so in some respects, as we get more and more nuanced data analytics, it's hard to win campaigns or it's hard to convince a candidate you can win if you play to the middle. It's easy to convince them if you rally up your base. And so I wonder almost if this age of intense data analytics for campaigns is resulting in the widening of the gulf, too, between both sides of the aisle as well. It's pretty interesting because, uh, you know, I remember, of course, mudslinging has always been around in political elections. But now- If that data is true, you're effectively telling someone, hey, you don't even have to be like, like your platform doesn't even have to be what this guy wants. It just has to be against what this other person stands for, because there's more people against that. I'll tell you, like in North Carolina, one of our races last year, one of the the candidates had an extramarital affair. And that was 100% all of the other side's advertising. Like, oh, but this person did that. You can't trust them. Right. And it was never about the issues. And so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is just how humans behave. You mentioned before, like we don't tend to go towards good news. If a, a brownie troop is raising money for a shelter on the side of the road, like you kind of look maybe, but if you see a car accident, you stop and slow down and now you're looking at bad news. Right. You've done a lot of talks about how data AI and like the future of tech is going to play a part in, in helping like society overall. And like one of the things that I always think about is like, just probably disinformation, in my opinion, is one of the big challenges to overcome. For yourself, what do you see as the biggest challenge that maybe didn't exist back in the day that companies, nation states, wherever needs to be, like needs to be mindful of? I believe it's disinformation, but I don't know. What's your opinion on that? Disinformation is definitely part of it. I mean, it's again, I, as I tell people, the good news is text getting democratized. The challenging news is text getting democratized. And so, you know, <laughs> individuals can now do what the CIA and the KGB could do 50 years ago, which, you know, and, and yeah. they had to deal with disinformation at their level. Now everybody does. And how many of us have a team of analysts to sift through what's real and what's not uh, like that they had 50 years ago? But you're absolutely right. I mean, you go back to the you know history of our nation. Thomas Jefferson hired a political hitman to spread disinformation about John Adams wanting to go to war with France. He didn't, but Thomas Jefferson wanted to win the presidency, and he did. And meanwhile, John Adams and Abigail Adams, his wife, were spreading, uh, I would assume it was disinformation, saying that Thomas Jefferson literally is the devil. Uh, and so, you know, this, <laughs> this is our founding of our country. So, yeah, know, it's always been there. It's always been there. <laughs> but I, I think, like you said, it's the speed, it's the scope, it's the reach, it's, it's the immediacy that, that has been changed. And this is partly a consequence of what was Web 2.0. You know, great news about Web 2.0, everybody can produce something. Bad news about Web 2.0, everybody can produce something, even the bots, uh, as, as we know. And, and, and the challenge with bots is, even though CAPTCHA can do some things to detect people, the bots are getting even more and more sophisticated. Um, I will share. Yeah. Just this last week, there's research articles that show GANs, which is an uh, adversarial network to basically generate graphics or generate photos. They can actually generate now more trustworthy looking people who don't actually exist versus real photos of people. Um, I saw that. I saw that. I saw this like uh, I saw this thing about like modeling yes. and how the modeling industry is going to get disrupted because they algorithmically 
program like i guess the best looking people to the most number whatever and it's yep. like this person doesn't exist but you can use this person to model clothes right and the reality is that you don't have to pay that person <laughs> anything or anything like that i mean <laughs> at the same time gpt3 you know the algorithm can actually produce phishing emails that are more likely to get clicked on than phishing emails written by an actual human so you can yeah. almost imagine somewhere is going to be a ransomware group that's like okay i can generate photos of people who don't really exist that you're more likely to trust I can generate emails that you're more likely to click. And at the same time, I can maybe also do a deep fake audio. At what point do we need to actually like literally have to pick up the phone? And when you're talking to your boss, say, look, boss, I know this is probably you. But before we proceed any further, because you've asked me to transfer $250,000, can you tell me the the middle name of your second child or something like that? Yeah, I've seen those scams. <laughs> I've seen those scams where people are like, yeah, you told me to wire the money to help pay for this. And they're like, no. No, it was an audio. It was an audio file and, and the money's out the door. Yeah. And, and again, if you're, an autoc- if you're an autocracy, very easy to deal with this. You, you basically police everything. And if you don't like it, you're either, you know, yeah. you're locked up or, or, or even worse, you're killed. Obviously, I don't want to see that happen. So I think the real question is, how can all of us, whether we're in a company, whether we're in government, whether we're just individual entrepreneurs, can we find technology that actually makes us more human and community centric? And I think the first step is just highlight your biases. Because we have biases. It's amazing. I brief like three-star and four-star generals who are like, I'm not biased. And I'm like, okay. And I'll give them some examples. Like, did you know that you're more, three times more likely to hire someone if their resume has a westernized name on it than if they don't? And that's not fair. That's just a bias yeah. that we have. And so do we need yeah. to think about for future job applications, you know, strip away the name, just look at the qualifications and, and examine it that way. Because hmm. that's not a fair bias to actually present when you're hiring, but it's unfortunately, it's shown for almost everybody that if the name is more like the name that your culture is from, you're more predisposed. And so I think if we can begin to instrument and understand the, the, the biases that we have cognitively, both as individuals and groups, we might be able to overcome it. The other thing that I would love to see, because it's amazing, the other thing I would also, I mean, in the last month, believe it or not, I've actually had conversations with people from both sides of the political aisle. These are retired uh, political candidates, but they, they both came in and said, we'd like to figure out how to counter disinformation. And they were absolutely sure that more facts would solve it. And I was like, uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, more facts, if anything, there is like kerosene on a gas fire that, that if once your belief system is kicked in, that something has or hasn't happened, it's hard to combat it with facts. What I would love to see is, do we approach a Netflix or do we approach an Amazon Prime and say, for a million dollars, we'll get 500 people from rural states, red states, and we'll, we'll have them go on a one week documentary experience to the blue states. And they'll blog about it and vice versa. You'll have 500 people from the blue states go to red states and it'll be, you know, it'll be on social media. You'll share it. You can do a documentary about it. I'm pretty sure you would actually make money on that. And so I think the way we'll eventually fight disinformation and just polarization is when we find ways that it's actually profiting to make things more community centric as opposed to the alternative. Well, you know, you brought that point up, which I always, I I do this in, um, in like just general debate among friends is like, well, that's not a fact. And I, and I always said, but why do you believe the facts that you have are facts? Right. And then if you really ask someone, just like, let's go down the path of like, what is a fact? How do you know this is true? Right. Right. And especially with something you've never experienced, seen, understands, like, are you, a, you know, and anything can be debunked. Once you start questioning your authority on your ability to recognize and understand whether it's truth or fact, then people start questioning themselves like, well, I guess I actually only believe it because as you said, I have a bias towards a source. I trust the source to be true. You know, I was wondering because me personally, as I've gotten older, I've personally started noticing like I'll subscribe now to tech, you know, back in the, like back in the day, 
uh, last week, I had a bias for free, free applications. Like I didn't want to pay for right. services. And yeah. I think most people are like that. They just don't really, for whatever reason, you want to charge me $6 for a nice coffee with like weird hazelnut juice or whatever, I'll right. pay it. But ask me 99 cents for an app. I'm like, well, y'all, I can't, I can't swing that. <laughs> right. But I did notice myself, I have started leaning towards subscription services that I think make my life significantly better. Uh, so the first one I fell down the hole of was Paper Karma because I hate huh. junk mail. Right. And so Paper Karma is like, hey, I will help you unsubscribe to all these catalogs. And I'm like, okay, I'll pay the $3 a month to do this. The scooping nature of news today, the business models, they don't work. Meaning they'll never lead towards more truth because they're trying to get more clicks sooner or faster. Yep. It's attention grabbing. Right. So I wonder if there's ever going to be a service that says, okay, what we do is we go back through historical news and we try to say like, this is true. This is not true based upon facts. Because if there was, I mean, I don't know, like, would people subscribe to it? Because I don't know. I think I would because I am at the point now where I've recognized that bias within myself. Like I've started to be like this. I don't know what's true anymore. And so I'm like, I kind of want to know what's actually true. And so I think about like using AI tools because that would take too much research. The other thing is to think about, would you be willing to subscribe to a digital agent that can help with triangulating? And so what if there was a digital agent, maybe the code is open source. Yeah. So you can make sure the agent has no backdoors and, you know, it's, it's only, it's there to represent you. And I have to claim, this is not just my idea. If your viewers have ever read the books of Ian M. Banks, I highly recommend it. It's, it's non-dystopian science fiction, because I think there's actually a whole lot of, right now we have a whole lot of dystopian narratives. Yeah. But this is actually the idea that we get through the messiness that we're currently in. And that basically everyone has their own personal, it's a combination digital agent and drone that supports them. And so it helps you with trying to triangulate information. But similarly, if someone tries to do something to your person that you don't like, the drone politely slaps them back. And so in some respects, it's national security at the level of one as opposed to of an entity. And, and you might say this is kind of anarchy. But what he shows is that if you allow individual choice, but then the digital agent plus the drone is sort of reflective of that person's choice, it's almost modern philosophy, which is do unto others as they would have you do unto them um, or they would permit you to do. And then we know that's sort of like the golden rule and some sort of interesting reflection. That's how we'll eventually get through this without becoming autocracies when we allow sort of the amplification of the triangulation that you need to do personally. But it also sort of says the drone can actually d disagree with you and say, I know you think this is true, but have you seen this other article that maybe will give a little bit more nuanced context? And I say that because there have been research studies that show you take people from both sides of the political aisle and you give them a very simplistic article. Yeah. And then you engage them in a debate. They're going to be very simplistic in the debate because they were primed by that simplistic article, even if it's unrelated to what they're debating. If, however, you give them a completely unrelated article that, that is more nuanced, it gives both sides of the issue and it's more nuanced, and then you have them debate something completely different, they're actually more reconciliatory and they're actually primed as a result of reading a more nuanced article. So I, I think it's almost like if you are what you eat, you are what you read and what you see. And so if we can get people back to, like you said, a paying model that provides more nuanced context and things like that and says, look, human society is messy. Yeah. Anyone who tells you this is the single side of the issue is probably, you know, selling you short, but here's how you can be exploratory towards it. And again, helps deal with the fact that there's only 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. We've got to figure out ways to encourage people to be more nuanced. Otherwise, like you said, we're going to become autocracies of thought. And then from autocracies of thoughts, autocracies in reality. Yeah. We've had so many times where people have been on talking about communities, you know, blockchain, which is the idea that, hey, everyone could be part of it. And like, you imagine we're passing blocks of truth or, or that, you know, they have a monetary value, but it's like you get more 
rewards for scooping other people like with truth. I agree, like in real time, it's probably impossible because the truth is unknown. But historically, it'd be interesting because you could theoretically start rating sources. Like imagine if I knew what percentage of what David says was true at the time, given the knowledge that was learned within right. like, the next 30, 60, 90 days or something like that. It would help us as people like recognize individual authority. They would also help recognize individual <laughs> lack of authority or like sources, right? So like the onion would get a zero rating. People are like, oh, this is totally fictitious, even though people legitimately retweet onion articles thinking that they're real, which is Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Yeah. Well, I got plays with our confirmation <laughs> bias. Well, I, so it's interesting to say, because we do have early examples of prediction markets where people are rewarded for like, you know, like they're trying to guess who's going to win the election or something like that. Now, if you recall, back in the early 2000s, we got a little bit in trouble because the government, it was probably phrased incorrectly, but the government came out and said, we want to use prediction markets to guess about world affairs. And next thing you know, someone was saying, they're going to use prediction markets to guess who's going to get assassinated. And it's like, oh, no, no, we don't want to guess on that. <laughs> but, 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 but you're absolutely right that, that there are interesting things is it shows that prediction markets, when you're actually betting some sort of credit system, as opposed to just asking people for a poll, when there's some sort of wager on the line, people are actually more truthful than just giving you their feelings because they spend time. And actually what's interesting also in prediction markets, you can take people who are diehards on one side and you can buy the shares low from the opposing side from them because they're all supporting on their side. And you can sell them high to the opposing side and vice versa. So you can do arbitrage and that arbitrage actually balances out figuring out the truth. This is where I think at the end of the day, like you said, whether it's through trying to figure out better subscription models, better ways of sort of Having people have a, I don't want to have a reputation score because I'm very worried about what China's doing with Sesame Social Credit. Uh, for your viewers, if you're not familiar with this, yeah. this happened, this is now, I guess it's almost 10 years old. It's not exactly 10 years old, but it's the idea that there are scores assigned every day to people's activities in China. And the challenge is, is of course, who determines those scores and who's controlling those scores and, and can that be manipulated? But you're absolutely right that we'll have to figure out how we navigate through this. One thing I would also say, the United Nations actually contacted me about two months ago, right when Ukraine was also going on too, and I was doing work there. And they said, we'd like to think about how we can do more community-centric data market activities. What's that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, you think about it, a lot right now, mostly your data is not benefiting you. You know, if anything, it's giving you that free app or it's giving you that free service. <laughs> But that's about it's it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be that advertisement. Like, I should buy a new surfboard. That's about it. All right. And, and even then, you don't know what else is being exploited. You know, it's very extractive. And it's only going to a few yeah. companies and things like that. And, and then you've got Europe with general data protection regulation that says, you know, you must think about protecting right, right. people's data. And the trouble is you've got five to 10,000 violations of GDPR per day that go, you know, it, GDPR yeah. is not working. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great signal, yeah. but it's not working. So the idea is, what if you actually said, whenever you engage in a data activity, there also has to be some community benefit, whether it's to the local regional community by geography or by the community by interests. Like these are people that care about hiking in the environment, or these are people that care about surfing in the ocean. And the idea that collectively our data has to have some benefit towards us beyond just giving us a free service or ads. It could be, for example, when COVID was being initially addressed in the United States, there was actually in the southeastern United States, there were people that were concerned that there was hesitancy on the certain of certain groups. For example, there was concerns that blacks were not getting tested for COVID. But when you actually looked at the data, it turned out that states had put the testing sites where people lived, even if where people lived, they spent 45 minutes commuting to where they worked. 
And so if you had a testing site was open during the day, mm. well, it didn't make sense to put it where they lived because they weren't able to use it because they were working somewhere else. And so that was just the idea that maybe your commuting patterns, and again, we don't want to identify specific people, we don't want to violate privacy, but it could tell the government where to put testing sites to be more effective to where you actually work. And then a year later, when the COVID vaccine was being rolled out initially, if you remember, it was age restricted. It said you had to be over 60 or something like that. Yep. yep. Um, there was concerns that there was, again, hesitancy on Hispanics and Blacks to get tested. But it turned out, unfortunately, for unjust historical reasons, that if you're over 60, unfortunately, you're more likely to be white at the moment. And so by placing an age restriction, the government was actually biasing who could get the test. And so it wasn't hesitancy on these communities, despite what the different newspapers were saying. There were newspapers saying these communities are hesitant. It was like, no, it's just you pass an age requirement that was biased itself, lift the age requirement. And now there was no hesitancy to begin with. And so yeah. it's one of those things that, that if your data can actually help inform either the government or companies where to better deliver services that actually benefit you, it's not just extractive, that would be more community centric. Well, there you go. I mean, I think ultimately it's a, it's kind of what you said, right? As much as technology improves, it's still a people problem. It's us. It's people. <laughs> it's people consuming the products. It's people making the products. And so I can see how, you know, different organizations want your involvement and trying to understand like, Hey, how do we best do this? How do we build the best thing that we can build? And how do we take it, not take advantage of that's not the right word, but like be stewards, I guess, of good information and good data. The one thing you said there was just like, I kept thinking, it was like, that's exactly what people who get in arguments about numbers always talk about. It's like, you just say a number, but you can tell a story around a number for either side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just, it's a good number. It's like, well, I can tell you that's bad because this is, this is also proves something else is true. And so it really does come down to like, who do we choose to believe? And that's a, that's a massive challenge. David, it was awesome having you on the show today on IT Visionaries. I think we were talking some deep subject matter that is, you know, over my head sometimes, but like highly philosophical. I enjoyed having you on the show and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. David, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work and maybe some in the realm of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Go for it. All right, man. You're the first guy I've seen. You're the first PhD I've seen <laughs> on LinkedIn with what appears to be a bulletproof vest on. What are you doing in this photo? Yep. Uh, that is the back of a C-130 in Afghanistan. It was 2009. I basically went as a nonpartisan downrange to identify problems they didn't know were problems yet and how they might come up with new solutions to it. Okay. So you have, uh, you know, you went to MIT, you went to Harvard, you... We actually went, we, we have something in common. We both went to Emory, mm -hmm. although I did not get a PhD in knowledge across organizations, information systems, and decision analyses. <laughs> How did you get involved in such, I guess, dangerous environments and dangerous work? Like, has it, has it, have you been a thrill seeker or is it, you just have the courage to do it? Like, how do you get involved in this? I go where I'm needed is what I would say. My mom was a school teacher. My father was a Methodist minister and his skill sets were healing fragmented congregations and capital planning. I realize I've just become them in a different setting, in this case, tech. Often the places that are dangerous, it's, I don't go there because they're dangerous. I go there because they've got issues that really matter and are going to impact us all. Yeah. I will say in Afghanistan, I actually wrote a report after 60 days in, and in which back in 2009, I said, I'm not sure why we're still here. Literacy is only 20%, and that's if you're a male. This is not where we're going to bring democracy. We should find some way to exit in 2009 and then go to different tribes and offer them aid as long as they promise not to abide anyone that means us harm. Unfortunately, of course, that was not something that the administration chose to follow, and, and that's their choice. Yeah. 
I, I try to go where I can to try and bring some reason, but I'm also recognizing that I'm a nonpartisan and not a political. What were you like as a kid? How did you get involved in this line of work? <laughs> um, so I look right now at my own five-year-old, and, and I think I'm kind of like him. Um, very, very imaginative, very creative. Uh, I was fortunate enough that my grandfather bought all his sons. So my dad got one, uh, an IBM PC with a whopping 64 kilobytes of RAM. No one else in my family used it. They were all English majors. And so I started to teach myself how to program first in basic and then C and then later assembly, and then also take the computer apart and put it back together. Awesome. The one thing that it's easy for me to say with other guests is like, oh, then how'd you become a software engineer? Or how'd you become, you know, the CTO? But right. like for you, you've, you're involved in so many different things. Give us an idea. Like when you were coming out of school, you would learn what you'd learned. How did you start thinking to yourself? Like, like I said, your, your PhD alone is like mind-blowing. Let me reread this for everyone to understand. He has a PhD in knowledge across organizations, information systems, and decision analysis. That's what you have listening. And you went to Oxford. You've been to all these un- unbelievable places. We both went to Rollins yep. at Emory for public, public health. Public health, hoorah! Yeah. And, so, and then you got your undergraduate in comp sign biology. So like you've always been on this like science, business, policy, tech did you know what you were going to do with all this? Oh, no, no. Uh, education? I, I, I tell people, like, tell me what the world looks like five years from now, and I'll tell you what I'm doing. Uh, no. So I guess I was very fortunate. My dad, when I was starting middle school, got assigned to Newport News, Virginia, which is a shipbuilding town. Yeah. They build ships. They also build nuclear submarines. And so they had a really good science fair program. And so I got pulled into science fairs. This was the, the early 90s, in which there was still government going to science fairs to find interesting talent. And so that led to me when I was 15, having to get a work permit to work at a Department of Energy facility building computer models. And this was 1993. So this was, if you remember, this was actually pre-World Wide Web. This was text-based yeah. Gopher and Archie protocols. Yeah. And then when I was 17, we moved up to Alexandria outside the DC area. And I got called down to the principal's office. Everyone was like, ooh. And there were four individuals in suits, uh, one of which said, you know, we'd like to offer you a job. It's going to be classified, but it's going to involve government satellites and you can help build some interesting software for it. If anything, I guess I was always worried that the best years of my life would have been my teenage years. And so I've always been compelled (laughs) to make sure the next decade is even more exciting. I once had a conversation with Stephanie O'Sullivan, who was at the time principal deputy director of national intelligence. And she said, and I think it's quite wise that, that, you know, life always makes sense in hindsight, but when you're living it, yeah. and I would just say to your viewers, if you want to have an interesting life, pursue your passions, pursue something where you think you can make a positive difference. And I guarantee you, you'll look back and they'll say it makes sense perfectly. But at the time, you know, I was just going where I was needed and, and where I was feeling called to be done. Um, sometimes I succeed. Sometimes I end up with battle scars, but it really is the idea of just be of service and you'll look back and you'll say that was a great life. Well, I'll tell you what, David, I'm, I'm psyched for people like you influencing the tech of the future. I mean, I think it's, it's sorely needed. Uh, that's just my personal opinion, of course. I mean, other people might be super happy that, you know, 99% of the articles they see are literally about <laughs> Exactly. We will caveat that. Right? I don't understand how that became news. Like, oh, LeBron James tweeted this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or the onion is now a reliable source. I mean, it's a great humor, but when did it actually become an Yeah, I mean, it's source? fine, but yeah, I mean, it's fine. But like, yeah, I'd like to understand some of these bigger issues. Dr. Bray, it was awesome having you on the show. I had to give you a shout out one more time, Dr. Bray. But David, it was awesome having the show. It was fun hearing some of the things you're working on. And, you know, it's, it's, it's also pretty mind-boggling, I think, for myself and our audience to like imagine that you can become 
such an authority or an advisor to such like big issues. Like you said, it's not like really a career path. It just kind of happens, you know, mm -hmm. you keep taking on big challenges. So it was awesome hearing what you're up to and understanding some of the stuff in, uh, in, uh, it was a great episode. Thank you, Albert. I really appreciate it. <laughs>